Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, Donald Trump made it back from his British excursion. A big thank you again to Sam Vinograd, my guest last week. We talked a little bit about Donald Trump and uh, it was at the beginning of his trip. Well, now we can talk about what happened with the rest of the trip. I'll do that in a second, but um, to preview this week's episode, my guest this week is Daily Beast political reporter Betsy Woodruff, and she's been doing really great work on the NRA. Over the last couple of weeks, I felt the story got a little bit buried, but there's something going on with the NRA between their finances. There's a coup attempt going on. Oliver North got fired. It's been crazy. So bringing Betsy on to talk a little bit in more detail since she's written some stories about that. And also, the Washington Post just wrote a pretty big expose as well over the weekend about the NRA and some questionable financial activity and what's going on there. So stay tuned for Betsy Woodruff to talk about her reporting on that. Uh, But I want to start off with um, Trump and his trip just to kind of go over a little bit of my thoughts about how he did while he was over there in the United Kingdom in Ireland for the D-Day commemoration, as well as his pleasure trip with the royals. First of all, I'll start off with the good. How about that? I will give Donald Trump some credit. His D-Day speech in Normandy was actually very well done. So I guess I'm actually giving more credit to his speechwriter, whoever that was, for an excellent speech. It was appropriate. It was moving. They recognized some of the World War II veterans that were there. It was well done. I mean, it wasn't Reagan, but it was it was um, surprisingly well done for Donald Trump because he stuck to the script. Now, um, what did he do that wasn't so great? Well, he can't help himself. He was there at this very solemn, very, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the ceremony there at Normandy that is hallowed ground. Tens of thousands of allied soldiers lost their lives there fighting for Western civilization, basically. You know, that D-Day represents the beginning of the end of the Nazi occupation of Europe and the beginning of the end of World War II. I mean, incredibly important. And Donald Trump, after he gave a a, a wonderful speech, I'll give him credit, like I said, decided that he was going to do an interview with Fox News' Laura Ingram while he was there. So you have the hallowed ground of Normandy and the cemetery in the background, one of them. And he goes on and criticizes Nancy Pelosi and goes on up you know, a rant, completely inappropriate, completely inappropriate. He just has no sense of respect for the day. He just doesn't. That's coupled on top of the disastrous Piers Morgan interview he had while he was over there. If anybody saw clips of that, I mean, completely off the rails. First of all, I can't stand Piers Morgan, but it was a softball interview. Piers Morgan, let's not forget, I believe was on The Apprentice with Donald Trump. So he has a history with him. Um, And he just, uh, Donald Trump, there was just too much to go over that was insane. But one of the parts of that Piers Morgan interview that really pissed me off was Trump talking about his draft dodging. He pretty much admits it. He says, well, I was no fan of the Vietnam War. And, And so... You know, because he wasn't a fan that gave him a right not to go. Let's all remember, Donald Trump dodged the draft because his rich daddy paid off a doctor to claim he had bone spurs. And he proceeded to get several deferments. Come on, we all know that that bone spurs thing is a bunch of bullshit. And I've called Donald Trump this many times. I've said it on air. He was a silver spoon draft dodger who had the audacity to run around claiming that not getting a a sexually transmitted disease was his own personal Vietnam. And you're telling me that this guy is a deserving commander-in-chief and respects the military? Please. And then he went on to say about how most people didn't even know where Vietnam was. We didn't even know Vietnam. What? 
I mean, it was it was bonkers. It was a bonkers interview. But that part about basically admitting that he dodged a draft because he wasn't a fan of Vietnam. Well, you know what? There were tens of thousands of Americans who were drafted that didn't have that choice because they didn't have rich daddies that would bail them out. But they served. They did their duty to their country and 56,000 of them plus lost their lives in a horrible war. But they still did their their duty did their gave their service in their lives to this country. And that, that doesn't even count how many came back wounded and lives ruined when they came back. So, you know, I can't take it when, when Trump supporters sit there and they try to claim that he's this all oh, doing so wonderfully for the military and he's just such an honorable guy. No, the hell he's not. But they, you know, the cultists don't care. Another part of that trip, which was... Um, well, Sarah Sanders, you know, Eric Wemple in the Washington Post wrote an article about, is it Sarah Sanders' fault? Remember, she's the press secretary. Haven't seen much of her lately. As a matter of fact, there hasn't been a White House press briefing since March 11th. The longest ever. The press be- briefing used to be there for the White House to brief the press on what's going on and to answer questions on behalf of the presidency, right? On behalf of the president. Not anymore. Pretty much Sarah Sanders has been ghosted since the Mueller report because it showed in there that she's a liar. So she's lost her credibility. In the Mueller report, it talks about how she made up the fact that uh, after Comey was fired, she went up there and said, oh, there were, she was contacted by dozens of FBI agents who were happy about Comey being fired. When in actuality, it was quite the opposite. And my friend um, Josh Campbell, former FBI special agent and, and assistant to Comey, who was there the day that Comey got fired, he was with him. He has a book coming out and he talks about that. And I can tell you right now, there were a lot of tears that day when Comey got fired because he was beloved in the FBI, beloved. But Sarah Sanders got up there in front of that podium and told the White House press corps that people were happy about this. She had to admit under oath when she was interviewed for the Mueller report that she lied about that. She made it up. Well, that hurts your credibility when it's your job to tell the truth. But we all know that she's a liar. We all know. But that just proved it. So we haven't heard much from her. But she's still the White House press secretary. There is no communications director. Okay. (laughs) Remember, like five people had that job. The last one was Bill Shine, who used to be an executive over at Fox. And he left a couple months ago. So there's no communications director. You can't manage Trump. He's going to do whatever the hell he wants. And that's clear by the disastrous media interviews he had while he was over there in Britain. Between that Laura Ingram interview and that Piers Morgan interview, what the F? Crazy. So, um, and then and then what was the other? Why the hell were the kids there? What was his whole clan doing there? You know, it costs taxpayer money for them to travel because the Secret Service protects them. They might have paid out of pocket for their flights. Let's see if they actually did. Usually that's what happens. I'd be curious to see who's tracking that. But they just went over there. Why? They're adult children. What the hell were they doing there? Ridiculous. And speaking of ridiculous, Trump in that white tie tux outfit, his tails, horrible, ill-fitting. He looked miserable. I'll give Melania credit. She always looks fantastic. That's about all she's good for. But uh, Trump looking like a slovenly, uh, you know, idiot. He couldn't even bother to get a properly tailored suit, uh, tux. For God's sakes, the British media went off because anyone who knows the Brits take their formal wear very seriously. And they're known for their tailoring. Ever heard of Savile Row? Some of the best tailors in the world. So, you know that Donald Trump was skewered for looking like a like he just I don't know, rolled out of bed with this ill-fitted suit, uh, tux, tails, tux. It was horrible, but not surprising. Anyway, so when he was, while he was over there, though, he um, was rage tweeting, of course, because that's what he does. Couldn't help himself. He went, he went, spent millions of dollars again in taxpayer money so he could go visit his golf course in Ireland. No diplomatic purpose for that just simply to go there. Ridiculous. They flew back and forth from the golf resort. 
to the Normandy ceremony. Ridiculous. Unnecessary waste of taxpayer money. But Republicans are just okay with this. They don't care. They were not okay with it when Barack Obama was golfing. And I've got news for you. He didn't divert entire diplomatic trips to go golfing. Not that I'm aware of. And I was pretty um, critical of Barack Obama playing golf. At least it was local, for God's sakes. I think we're over $100 million in money, taxpayer money spent for Donald Trump to go golfing at his own resorts, by the way. Anyway, so on his way back, while, well, actually, while he was over there, we had this whole Mexican standoff, right, over the tariffs, because it's a mess on the border, of course, and it, and it continues to be, because Donald Trump is really not interested in an actual solution. He likes this crisis. He does things to gin it up and make it worse so that he can come in and claim victory when he comes up with a half-assed solution and it looks like, oh, look, I, I, you know, I negotiated a great, de- a great deal because his minions don't know any better. So he can lie to them and bullshit them and they believe it. And that's exactly what happened with the, Mex- with the Mexican tariff threat. So what, what happened exactly? Well, Donald Trump has always been obsessed with this tariff thing, even when he was a private citizen. This is something that he's obsessed over because he thinks that the world is taking advantage of this country. And then, you know, now that he has the tariff power, he's, he's weaponizing it, which is exactly what the head of the Chamber of Commerce said. You can't do this. It's disruptive, especially when you're dealing with Mexico, which is a major trading partner on a lot of things. Mexico and Canada. That's why we had NAFTA. That's why they renegotiated just for like kind of a new NAFTA with only a couple tweaks. It's really not that that new. This USMCA or whatever it's called. But these are important trading relationships. And the president just goes after our allies. He doesn't care. He doesn't negotiate in good faith because he's a shitty freaking negotiator. Anyone who knows him knows that. Except for the people who blindly follow him. They're in denial. So for the first time, I have to say, more than one Republican senator actually came out and said, we, we have enough votes to override if we need to, if he goes through with this tariff threat. So what was Trump doing? He was basically threatening to, ta- to throw on 5% tariffs up to 25% if Mexico didn't agree to certain things to help curb this illegal immigration flow that's going on right now. Well, one doesn't have anything to do with the other. Border security and and illegal immigration has nothing to do with tariffs. And tariffs are taxes on you and me. They are taxes on the consumer. Do not let Donald Trump or anybody else tell you differently. Every economist worth their salt will tell you that tariffs are taxes. Basically, what happens is when you import something, you pay a tax at the port the tax goes to the treasury, but the company that had to import whatever it is, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to pass that cost onto the consumer. Hello, basic economics 101. So we get a lot of stuff from Mexico. People don't realize this a lot from our avocados to our car parts. Major supply chains go through Mexico. So Donald Trump leveling this threat was really disruptive. It's bad enough that we've gone through this trade war with China now, which is another supply chain issue and very disruptive in the world markets. So Trump figured, well, I'm going to threaten the tariffs then, and that's going to force Mexico to come to the table. Sort of, kind of. So these Mexican negotiators come and they, quote, hammer out a deal. So Saturday, Trump is back. He's got nothing on his public schedule. So all he had to do was sit around and tweet all damn day, which he did. Everything from complaining about Donnie Deutsch on MSNBC or his new show, wherever it is, how he's a loser and he sucks and going on and on about television ratings again. Who cares? Your president, find something else to do. To this claiming victory that, oh, you know, I saved the day because no tariffs, because he had they had to come to a deal on Friday. And if not, then the tariffs would kick in on Monday. Well, Republicans were screaming bloody murder. More than one. Because they knew that their states would be hurt, especially senators from like Texas, 
Cornyn and Cruz, they actually said, this can't, we can't do this. This is going to hurt Texas. They're, we're going to lose jobs. Because I think it's six out of the 10 major ports where we import stuff are in Texas. Texas does something like $107 billion worth of, of um, trade with directly with Mexico, something like that. So the tax would have been insane and it would hurt Texas and it would hurt the agriculture, uh, agricultural communities in, in states that are red states that voted for Donald Trump. So I guess it finally sunk in. So what did he do? Well, he claimed that they had two major uh, provisions that the Mexican government agreed to do. So what were they? One, the concession was, okay, Mexico's going to send more of their National Guard troops to the southern border with Guatemala to try to stop the flow there. Well, here's the kicker. That was already agreed to in December when Kirsten Nielsen was still the DHS secretary. She'd already negotiated this deal with them. The difference is that now they agreed to 6,000 troops. In December, it was 5,400 troops. Woo, whoop de doo But here's the other kicker. This isn't going to be fully implemented until 2021. So what the hell is that going to do now to stop this flow that's coming in? Nothing. Very little. Very little. I thought the border wall was supposed to, to fix this problem. Right. I thought there was a national emergency declared. Trump had to abuse his executive power to get this, quote, national emergency to redistribute funds to build the wall. What happened? We've got record numbers of people still coming over here. Because that was a bunch of bullshit, too. So what was the other provision? Well, the other provision was they allegedly agreed to this migrant protocol protection plan, which is basically that. The migrants can stay in Mexico while their asylum claims are being processed. Well, that sounds good, right? Instead of coming to the U.S. and getting released until their hearings, they stay in Mexico until a hearing. Now, there, that, had, that had also been agreed to a couple months ago. <laughs> That's not new. And it's also been litigated in the courts because there was some question as to whether that was constitutional can you make them stay somewhere else while the asylum claim goes through? One court said, no, you can't do it. And they put a stay on it. Then the appellate court said, no, they can implement this while it's being litigated. So what did they really gain? What grand agreement did Trump actually get? He didn't really get anything. A couple tweaks of stuff that was already negotiated and in place. Maybe they've accelerated a little bit. Maybe they've, they've moved the timetable up of implementation but we'll see. It was a, just a Max Boot is funny. I love Max Boot. I've had him on before. I, I should bring him back. He's been on the podcast. Uh, he writes, he's a columnist for the Washington Post. And if you don't follow Max Boot on Twitter, you should. He's also a CNN analyst too, so you can see him there. But he writes great columns for the Washington Post. He's hysterical. And in his latest column, it's called... Um, our great leader claims another illusory win. And he uses the term flim flammery and sycophancy caucus talking about Republicans and how Trump just pulled another, you know, con artist flim flammery thing over people. And the sycophancy caucus of Republicans just goes along and says, oh, he's been well, he negotiated a wonderful deal. Really? They know better. This whole thing is so ridiculous, too. Republicans, we were not protectionists. We hate tariffs. We're free traders. Like, what are they doing? That's how you know they're so full of it. They've just lost it. They've all lost it. So the, some, the ones that did come out that were like, ah, the president can't do this, but they, once he, quote, negotiated this deal, oh, he's a wonderful negotiator. That's great. Oh, come on. Rubio and all the rest of them. Come on, you guys. So there, it, then, then, oh, there was more. So then he, the president tweeted a something, some kind of mysterious tweet. One is completely false because the Mexicans came out and said, uh, what? Actually, they said what to two of the things. First, he says that Mexico agreed to buy agricultural products in large numbers from our great patriot farmers. And Max Boot, 
appropriately points out that calling our farmers the great patriot farmers, very reminiscent of not Nazi propaganda. But um, <laughs> the Mexicans were like, we didn't agree to any plan like that. What are you talking about? We still don't know. Then he also tweeted out about something, some secret accord that's supposed to be announced later on. The Mexicans are like, well, what the hell is that? We don't know what that is either. Nobody seems to know, but it's in Trump's mind somewhere. So to stay tuned, as he always says, we'll see. There's going to be some secret accord that he'll announce later when it's appropriate. Don't hold your breath, folks. So this Mexican tariff thing, aver- crisis averted, but Trump didn't negotiate some great deal. He, 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 it was a bunch of bullshit. He does this. He manufactures crises so he can come in and turn around and say, get a little bit of something and make it look like he saved the day. It's, it's unbelievable. But the tariff threat's still on the table, by the way. We're not out of the woods here. He's strong-arming them while, or hanging it over Mexico's head if they don't do what he wants. So we may be right back here again in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Who knows? You never know with this guy. Oh, he's also threatening increased tariffs so, uh, against China if President, President Xi Jinping doesn't show up to the G20 in Japan later this month. I mean, it's ridiculous. He also had a, Trump had a, a bonkers CNBC interview on Monday morning also that, whew, this guy is so ignorant when it comes to world affairs and just basic economics and markets. He just, he, he's unintelligible. Unintelligible. He lobbies, you know, lobs insults. He insulted the chairman of the, uh, I mean, the president of the Chamber of Commerce. His last name is Brilliant. He goes, oh, it must not be too brilliant. Yeah, because they criticized Trump over the tariff crap. He said, stop weaponizing tariffs. You're killing our supply chains for our businesses. So he's good at that, just lobbing insults because he's a child. George Conway wrote an op-ed talking again about how unwell Trump is. Yeah, if you look at the, oh, he tweeted about how, oh, if uh, Obama had negotiated such a great deal like this, it'd be a national holiday, but I don't get any credit. Me, 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 where? This guy, man, you're freaking president of the United States. Cut it out. It's sad. It really is sad to see how he lives his whole life just looking for validation. Good grief. Definitely needs to shrink. <laughs> Good luck with that. Imagine those notes. Great. My God. Um, what else is going on? Oh, little, uh, oh, so a couple of little political tidbits of things coming up. So we have been working with an acting Department of Homeland Security secretary. Kevin McAleenan is still acting, not confirmed. Got a couple of other acting people. There's all kinds of acting deputies everywhere. I mean, the government is running on a very skeleton government because you can't get a lot of people to work for this crazy person. Who wants to be a part of this nutcase nut, nut administration? I don't blame them. But now we also are looking at uh, an acting uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services director. And Ken Cuccinelli, who used to be the AG, the attorney general for the state of Virginia, I think CNN hired him at one point as a commentator. I've battled him a couple times. But Ken Cuccinelli is now the, been named the acting USCIS director. Well, that's a Senate confirmed position. And people are wondering if he can, if he can make it because Ken Cuccinelli, even though he's a Republican and he's now a Trump supporter... He's made a lot of enemies within the party. Why? Well, because he he supported the primary challengers of some rather important people like Mitch McConnell. So Mitch McConnell's not happy with this dude. So I'm curious to see if he actually gets a vote. He may just, you know, um, the remainder of the term, he might just wait it out as an acting. They don't care, so be interesting. Also, John Huntsman, some people may know that name. His daughter, Abby Huntsman, is on The View. John Huntsman is also the her father. And he is the ambassador to Russia. So he's been over in Russia since 2017. Well, before he did that, 
He ran for president in 2012. And before that, it was a short-lived candidacy, by the way. And before that, he was the governor of Utah. Well, it looks like he's homesick now. He's done with Russia. By the end of the year, it's reported that he wants to come back and run for governor in Utah again. We'll see. I found that to be a little interesting tidbit. Everybody starts to jump ship around now. So there's that. Well, also, uh, another thing that went on were the hearings in the Judiciary Committee with John Dean, the former White House counsel for Nixon, who broke open Watergate with his testimony back then in 1973. He went to jail and um, lost his law license, got disbarred, the whole nine, it was a whole thing. But he has come back and, and written books and he's basically paid for his, atoned for his sins back then. And he has been making comparisons. CNN hired him also, by the way. But he's been making comparisons to what happened under Watergate and what Nixon did compared with what Trump is doing now, especially with the obstruction of justice stuff that's in the Mueller report. Well, um, he testified today in front of the Judiciary Committee for historical context, not as a fact witness, because he doesn't, he wasn't privy to the Mueller investigation. Some people are thinking, well, what the hell is John Dean testifying for? I mean, what's he going to offer? I mean, you know, he offers some historical context, like I said, and he can compare and contrast things in the Mueller report compared to what happened with Nixon. Okay. He had two other former U.S. attorneys that were there as well. Joyce White Vance, who was a former U.S. attorney in Alabama, and also she's an MSNBC legal analyst. And then they had another woman. Uh, her name was Barbara McQuaid. I wasn't familiar with her, but she is a former U.S. attorney in Michigan. And they all offered their professional opinion on different aspects of the Mueller report, basically laying out how, look, there's multiple instances of obstruction of justice here. And if there were if it were anybody else but the president of the United States, we'd be charged. Hands down. Hands down. Now, um, Betsy Woodruff, she talks a little bit about kind of behind the scenes and what Democrats were thinking about this hearing as they were going into it. You can listen to her on that. But um, it was a contentious hearing, of course, with when the Republicans questioned John Dean. They went after his integrity. They went after, why are you here? You just made money off of books comparing things to Watergate and blah, 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 blah. Anything to avoid the facts of the Mueller report. Because a lot of these fools didn't even read the Mueller report. They don't want to read the Mueller report. Because they know if they do, they're going to be like, oh my God, how can I just lie about this? There was some congressman from somewhere, some Republican on MSNBC the other day, and I think it was Casey Hunt who asked him, did you read the report? And he was like, no, I don't have to read the report. I'm not reading the report. Why? Now they're going after Mueller and claiming that the report was politically biased. That's the new Republican line now. Come on, you people. Because they know that anytime the report is read or parts of the report are referenced, it's devastating. What happened to Mueller is, is the gold standard, as Kellyanne Conway said. What happened to that? No more now, I guess. So Matt Gate Gates or Gates or whatever the hell his name is, he's so obnoxious. This this representative from Florida, he went after John Dean and started going off on tangents about the FISA stuff and the FBI corruption and uh, Peter Strzok and call me I'm Lisa Page blah 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 blah. Just complete deflections. There's nothing to do with it. How this all got started and Donald Trump was reacting to false allegations of being a Russian agent. Well, maybe he wasn't a Russian agent, but there was a whole lot of colluity shit going on in the Mueller report in volume one. And I please everyone, I encourage you to read it or at least read the summaries. There was a lot of disturbing information in there. A lot. That is not acceptable. But Republicans... They're still just the Praetorian Guard making excuses for Trump and trying to distract. So, Getsy's just so obnoxious. But Representative Bass, from a Democrat from California, she talked about the um, importance of taking notes. See, if you read the Mueller report, volume two, page 116, it lays out this example of Trump talking to McGahn. 
And Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, Don McGahn is at the he's the center of a lot of the obstruction actions because he refused to carry out the president's bidding to fire Mueller, to lie about a New York Times story that talked about the fact that Trump tried to get McGahn to fire Mueller and Trump wanted to get McGahn to retract that and and, and, um, claim that, no, 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 he never said that to him and correct the New York Times story. And Don McGahn was like, no, because it's not inaccurate. So I'm not doing that. That's obstruction, by the way, people. But so so Trump and, and on page 116, there's this kind of funny but sad but concerning exchange between Trump and McGahn. So Don McGahn's taking notes. And Donald Trump's like, why are you taking notes? And he's like, I've had lawyer, plenty of lawyers, and they don't take notes. And Don McGahn was like, well, I'm a real lawyer. And Donald Trump was like, well, Roy Cohn was my, was my attorney. He never took notes. <laughs> Roy Cohn was a bastard, horrible, unethical SOB who was a, a, a general counsel to McCarthy during the McCarthy era. Then he was a mafia lawyer, okay? And got this disbarred. So that's the standard? Well, the reason, so when Karen Bass was asking, like, what's the importance of taking notes? And she was asking John Dean and the other former prosecutors, and they said, look, the only reason for a, 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 um, a lawyer not to take notes would be for plausible deniability. So you don't have any contemporaneous record of what's going on. So the point, they said that they'd never in their careers ever had a client or anyone ask them not to take notes because you want them to have a contemporaneous record. The only reason not to do that would be unethical for some unethical, nefarious reason. So why the, of course Donald Trump didn't want McGahn taking notes because that would prove it would be a contemporaneous record of what was actually happening. Yeah, well, that's a problem because Trump lies his ass off constantly. He lies about what time of day it is. So I just thought that that was an interesting, an interesting um, part of the the testimony because it just showed how ridiculous Trump behaves and Republicans just ignore it. They make excuses. No, 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 he's the victim. No, he's not. He's not the victim. Um, one last thing before I bring in Betsy Woodruff. Biden. Everyone knows that I've been, you know, secretly supporting Biden. Well, I guess not so secretly. I've been openly saying that I think Joe Biden is the only one that can beat Trump. I still feel that way. But he's done some a couple of things that have just kind of shown how rusty he is. And one of the things that uh, concerned me was this recent flip-flop on the Hyde Amendment. Now, I'm pro-life, but I'm also not one of those pro-lifers who is going to shove certain restrictions like down people's throats and force people who've been raped or get pregnant from incest. Like, you can't have an abortion. I, I can't force those religious beliefs that I have that life begins at conception on other people who don't believe that. So I think what Alabama and Missouri and one of these other states are doing with these unbelievable restrictions that don't even allow for rape and incest is a huge mistake politically because it's not in the mainstream of this country. And now abortions back as a top campaign issue. It's craziness. Republicans already have a problem with the women, the suburban women vote. This is not the way to win them back. And the Hyde Amendment has been in play for 40 years, and it basically says no federal taxpayer money goes toward funding abortions. I don't have a problem with that. If you want to have an abortion, that's that's your prerogative. But the American taxpayer should not have to pay for it. I'm sorry. Now, the left says, well, it's unfair to women of color and people who are poor because they can't afford to pay for their own abortions. Well... I'm sorry, but plenty of poor women have managed to have abortions. Hundreds of thousands of them over the years. Planned Parenthood gets hundreds of millions of dollars in private money to subsidize abortion. So I'm sorry. That's just not an appropriate use of federal money. The Supreme Court agrees that the Hyde Amendment is constitutional. 
the Supreme Court ruled in cases in 1979 or 80 that abortion is a unique procedure different than others because it's the only procedure that is specifically done to terminate life. So it's a different standard. So when people say healthcare is a right and abortion is healthcare, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. So, and I'm not the only one. I don't, I'm not outside the mainstream. And Joe Biden was supportive of the Hyde Amendment. It's had bipartisan support for 40 years. 22% more of the American people believe by 22% margin that the Hyde Amendment should is, is, is okay. They agree with it. No federal tax dollars for abortion. You know, I mean, we've come a long way now with the left trying to push this as some kind of mainstream idea. It's not. What happened to safe, legal, and rare? That's what, that's what Bill Clinton used to say. Now, Joe Biden was pressured into disavowing his support for the Hyde Amendment by the left. You know, the, the Democrats have actually, in 2016, they put it in their party platform to repeal the Hyde Amendment didn't get much attention because of Donald Trump and all kind of a lot of other things like social issues weren't really a big deal. They kind of snuck it in there. Well, now it's coming back because of the extreme abortion uh, laws that are being passed. But so, so Biden, well, he's a Catholic and he talks about his faith and, and so he flip-flopped on this. Some ACLU woman at a, during a rope line event asked him, does he think the Hyde amendment should re- be repealed? He said, yes, at first, didn't get much attention until a couple of weeks later, the video came out and he was like, "Uh oh, no, that's not what I meant. So his campaign came back and they said, no, no, he still supports the Hyde Amendment. His faith is really important to him. And, you know, he supports the Hyde Amendment with exceptions, which it has for rape and incest. And then he got an onslaught of backlash from the left and he flipped, flopped, flipped. Then he went, oh, no, no, actually, if I believe healthcare is a right, I can't say that we should deny anyone because of their zip code, healthcare and, you know, abortion. Yes, the, the Hyde Amendment should be repealed. I think that's a mistake. I mean, maybe for the Democratic primary, because Biden's got to get out of that primary. He's got to tack to the left. But that's going to come back to haunt him, I think, in the general election, because there are a lot of Republicans who... Um, the pro-life issue, they're single issue voters that may not like Donald Trump, but they can't bring themselves to vote for a Democrat because of the the pro-choice, pro-life issue. I think they could have done that with Joe Biden, with at least his, I mean, he's pro-choice, but at least he understood the restrictions of federal money for it. I just think it could hurt him. And not only that, just the flip-flop flip of it. Well, which is it? What do you believe? Are you just going to say anything? Can we trust what you say? It's echoing kind of problems of his other two runs for the presidency. So he better get it together. He better get it together. He probably thought that he was going to have to answer that on the debate stage. It's coming up in two weeks, the first Democrat debate, which is going to be a disaster, by the way. All these freaking 20 of them or whatever, however many. Didn't they learn from Republicans? But anyway, so he thought for political expediency, this was the right thing to do. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the issue goes away now, but then he's going to have to, if he makes it through the primary, he's going to have to address it again during the, during the general. I just think it makes him look bad. That's just my opinion. But polls are showing he's still in the lead. An Iowa poll came out. He's up 24%. Bernie Sanders is at 16%. Buttigieg and Warren have made some significant gains. They're at like 16 and 14%. And then Kamala Harris is at seven. That's in Iowa. Important state because of the caucus, which is the first in the nation. It was um, New Hampshire primary, Iowa caucus. So Biden lost a little couple percentage points from since he announced. And others like Buttigieg and Warren have gained some, but it's still fluid. Biden has been, they've been reluctant to have him out there too much because everybody knows who he is. So, you know, he's a gaff machine. He's gaff prone. We all know this. So they're trying to control how much access the press has to him before this debate. So we'll see. 
we'll we'll see what what how that all plays out. But come on, Joe, I'm I'm rooting for you. Don't I was so crushed when he when he reversed his position on the Hyde Amendment so quickly. Oh, the flip flop flip thing. It's like Mitt Romney. Nobody likes a flip flopper. John Kerry, same thing. Don't make that mistake. Oh. Speaking of mistakes, the NRA. We're going to talk more about that with Betsy Woodruff. The Washington Post story is pretty devastating, and she's written a bunch of stories about what's going on with the with the NRA as well for the Daily Beast. So, next up, Betsy Woodruff. This week, I'm bringing in crack political reporter for the Daily Beast, my friend Betsy Woodruff. Betsy, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Glad to have you on. You're a first timer. Thanks for having me, Tara. Um, I thought of you because of our conversation over text last week when you said you saw me on The View. And I was like, oh, hey, Betsy. And then I real, I'm like, wait, Betsy's been doing all these really amazing stories on this craziness with the NRA and a couple of other things. And I'm like, I need to get you on. But before we start talking about the NRA, uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts because I know that you cover uh, law enforcement and, and Congress. Uh, what are your thoughts about what's going on with the hearings in the Judiciary Committee and former Watergate star, former White House counsel John Dean, and what the Democrats are doing with with those hearings? It, uh, I think you have an interesting perspective on that. It's something that's generated a little bit of head scratching among members who are pushing for impeachment. That's because even though, of course, you know, James Dean had a front row seat and a you know, dramatic participating role in the in the Watergate saga, he, of course, doesn't bring any inside information about the Trump saga. He rather is bringing historical perspective, an aid for one member who's been part of the broader conversations among the Democratic caucus regarding, you know, trying to push more aggressively on impeachment. Told me there's been a little bit of head scratching among those members that want to see Democratic leadership do more on impeachment when they look at this particular hearing. They see it as, you know, interesting and, you know, not something that's going to cause any harm, but at the same time as something that's not necessarily going to move the ball forward for members that actually want to see steps of substance taken on the impeachment question. You know, some folks have speculated that this hearing has been an effort to uh, to minimize some of the private criticism that Pelosi and other Democrats in House leadership have faced over, you know, their decisions, you know, not to favor an impeachment inquiry. And if that was the hope uh, when it came to putting together this hearing, that hope would not be particularly well-founded because I don't expect any of that you know, criticism, most of which has been kept behind closed doors, uh, to abate. That's interesting because I think uh – Democrats aren't the only ones that are kind of going, well, John Dean, why? I mean, he's a colleague of mine now at CNN, so we get to hear John Dean's perspective often about what's going on and the comparisons to Watergate, which, like you said, it's interesting, but he doesn't bring anything new to the situation. So I thought that it was a a rather, could be clever, maybe um, too cute by half to make it seem like, look, we're doing something, a way to kind of placate some of those members, uh, the Democratic caucus who have been more pushing for more aggressive impeachment movement. Um, Maybe this kind of will quiet them for a little while because it's kind of sort of impeachment related, but not really. So um, it'll be curious. I'll be curious to see how it's received afterwards, because by the time this podcast, this podcast airs, John Dean will have already testified um, and we'll we'll have to see what the reaction is. But I thought the fact that so many Democrats are kind of like, what was was it was an interesting insight. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then also it's been reported that uh, Judiciary Chairman Nadler has seem, seemingly struck a deal with the Department of Justice on the subpoena documents for the Mueller report that the Judiciary Committee has been fighting for. And the White Trump White House has said, no, we're not doing it. We, we don't want to cooperate. But it looks like now that there's been some some kind of deal. Can you just explain what it is that Nadler is trying to obtain? And uh, do we know anything about what that deal is? 
That's right. Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee have been in very intense negotiations ever since the Mueller report first came out. Nadler and Democrats on that committee want to see the evidence that the Mueller report was based on. So they want to see the notes that FBI agents took in interviews. They want to see documents that uh, that different witnesses produced or documents that the FBI was able to obtain by issuing subpoenas. They kind of want to lift up the hood of the Mueller report and sort of, you know, look inside and get a sense of how Mueller reached uh, the assessments that he reached, particularly as it involves obstruction of justice. So according to a press release that Nadler sent out just a few minutes ago, all the members of the Judiciary Committee, both Democrats and Republicans, are going to have access to, quote unquote, key evidence that the special counsel used to assess whether the president and others obstructed justice or were engaged in other misconduct, unquote. So I reached out to the Justice Department and asked if they take issue with any of the things that Nadler said in the statement that he put out, kind of describing the access these members are going to have. I haven't heard back from DOJ yet, but if I do, of course, uh, we'll get you an update on that. Kind of the big picture here, though, is DOJ has essentially blinked. Uh, mm-hmm. They decided to let these members look at you know, what they characterize as key evidence. And remember, there are what, dozens of members of the House Judiciary Committee? My understanding is that they're going to have to hoof it to DOJ a couple <laughs> blocks from the Capitol to look at this evidence. That's usually how these things go. One of the big questions from a reporter's standpoint, obviously, is going to be, do these, do these members leak? You know, are, they going to, are they going to start saying, here's what we saw? Here's, is it worse than Mueller characterized it? Is there more to the story than Mueller said? Republicans might criticize Mueller uh, if they believe that he left out anything that could be exculpatory. They've already criticized portions of the Mueller report uh, along the same line, uh, you know, arguing that Mueller kind of, you know, left out stuff that could have made Republicans or could have made people close to the president look good. So they Um, claim. So it's super, it's super, that's right, that's the claim. So it's super interesting and it's a really big deal. Um, Well, this includes the- had been very resistant of letting them see any of it. Right. So this is a big win for Democrats. Would any of this include the FISA, the, the, the FISA applications? That's a big fight and something that some folks over at Fox News and Trump supporters seem to think that there's this big conspiracy, deep state conspiracy concerning the FISA documents. Would that be included in what Nadler's asking or is that a separate issue? So that would, I think that would be a separate issue because Nadler's specifically asking about the stuff that Mueller looked at. And, you know, much to the chagrin of the pro-Trump community, Mueller did not do sort of a retrospective look at how the investigation he ran got started. Right. Um, he wasn't really investigating the project that he took over. Maybe because um, it wasn't so necessary. I don't think there's going to be. <laughs> Maybe because <laughs> it wasn't say? necessary. He wasn't going to waste time on that. But, you know, go ahead. <laughs> Who can say? Right. Um, we'll find out. Now, no, I, I, I do think, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, my, I mean, just from reading the Nadler press release and having followed this pretty closely, I would be very surprised if there's anything classified or, or you know, particularly sensitive in these documents that members are going to be checking out because it involves obstruction. You know, most of the evidence on obstruction just came from witness testimony from people like White House counsel, now ex-White House counsel Don McGahn. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're going to be seeing anything super sensitive or, you know, intel related. But of course, I, without a doubt, it has the potential to be extremely interesting. And uh, without a doubt, someone will leak it. This is Congress we're talking <laughs> about. You know, it's going to get out there. We'll know within, you know, by tonight, we'll know what, what was in those documents. Um, well, I wanted to, to, to talk about the NRA because I find what's happening there has been pretty underreported because of all of the other crazy that just goes on every day that sometimes these stories get lost. And you've been doing some really excellent reporting on this. What the hell is happening with the NRA? (laughs) Uh, It's a really good question. Um, So the way to think about the NRA situation is there are basically two camps 
that are in something of a death match. One camp is Wayne LaPierre, the outside lawyer representing the NRA. His name is Bill Brewer. He's from Dallas. And then the other camp is Oliver North, you know, NRA's former president who was sort of forced out. And Ackerman McQueen, which is an Oklahoma City advertising firm that's been working with the NRA for almost 40 years and that produces the NRA TV online streaming programming. So for decades, there was basically no daylight between NRA headquarters and Ackerman McQueen. They just worked together so closely on so many things that it was hard to see, you know, one entity existing without the other practically. Mm -hmm. uh, but over the last six months or so, there's been this very dramatic falling out. My understanding is that it was kind of precipitated by the New York Attorney General starting an investigation of the NRA to see if the organization has been complying with the laws in New York that govern nonprofits. The NRA is domiciled in New York, even though it's headquarters are in Virginia. So they are in the jurisdiction of the New York Attorney General. So what's been happening over the last maybe two or three months uh, since mid-April has been a sort of the, the uh, commencement of a very nasty legal fight between NRA headquarters and Ackerman McQueen, this advertising firm. The NRA sued Ackerman McQueen and mentioned Oliver North. They alleged that Oliver North kept uh, part, kept information about his work for Ackerman McQueen secret from the NRA, that he was simultaneously running the NRA as president and taking a paycheck from Ackerman McQueen without telling the NRA about it. Uh, you know, Ackerman McQueen is defending itself, says that the claims the NRA has made are not correct, um, but that's something that we expect to see play out in court. Um, and then in addition, the NRA or Ackerman McQueen fired back at the NRA, filed a counterclaim. I think the NRA is asking for about $40 million. Ackerman is asking for $50 million. Oh Those numbers might be switched around, but that's like that's, that's the amount of money we're talking about. Right. And Ackerman McQueen said that the NRA has made it impossible for them to do the work that they're doing or to, to hold up their end of the contract. So Ackerman is basically trying to start divorce proceedings with the NRA. But the weird <laughs> thing about this is that like, and actually like, you know, talking about this in sort of, in, with sort of the divorce analogy is helpful because even though Ackerman and the NRA basically are in the process of separating. They're still legally tied together by this contract. Because, so of, the, because of NRA TV, right? Exactly. And so just NRA, for, just if, you go, if you go to just, NRA TV today, right. just if you go to NRA TV know, today, it's still running. Yeah, for people who don't know, um, the NRA started its own streaming channel called NRA TV in 2016. And uh, kind of jumping on the bandwagon of things like uh, CRTV and The Blaze, they decided that they were going to do their own their own thing and they had people like Dan Bongino who's a psycho by the way um, in my opinion um, he's got serious anger management problems he blocked me on Twitter it's a whole thing but anyway but Dan Bongino um, Dana Lesh like so it was their kind of their own propaganda channel <laughs> yeah started it's, in it's 2016. super it's super it's, it's super red meat it you know some of the programming on NRA TV is the kind of thing that just people who like guns would watch you know stuff about outdoorsmanship and right. hunting and people talking about sort of you know, gun hardware. Other NRE TV stuff, though, kind of goes full culture wars in a way that has really off-put a lot of NRA members. Mm -hmm. The most notorious example of this is Dana Lash did a segment about how um, Thomas the Tank Engine was bringing in a new character who was supposed to, like, a, a train that was supposed to have sort of like African heritage. And Dana Lash said, this is political correctness run amok. And she was, for whatever reason, was very uh, offended by this. And she put up a graphic on the NRA TV screen that showed Thomas the Tank Engine characters wearing KKK hoods. Oh, for God's um, sake. Which, which is just like you know, totally bizarre, right. um, as well as a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of and there was a lot of kind of, you know, uh, perplexedness within the NRA of people saying, why on earth are we doing this? Why are mm -hmm. we paying for this? How does this help advance the mission of protecting gun rights and limiting any you know, federal or state laws restricting people's access to guns? Um, so there's already been frustration about NRA TV within the NRA. And now the NRA is basically trying to you know, excise NRA TV from itself. One of the challenges, though, is, and these, this is something court filings intimate, is that the NRA probably still owes Ackerman McQueen a lot of money for the NRA TV programming. Ackerman McQueen is still making it. Oddly enough, even though all this nonsense has gone down, uh, David Bernhardt, the Secretary of the Interior,
Superior, a member of Trump's cabinet, gave an exclusive interview to NRA TV just last week. So it's still making programming. It's still working, even though this sort of acrimonious divorce process between the two entities uh, that involves tens of millions of dollars uh, is going on in the background. Well, very it, nasty. Uh, it, and it's going to and it's and it's interesting because it sort of like pulls back the curtain on the NRA, which is really a notoriously secretive organization, historically very hostile to the media. People who work there don't like talking to reporters. They keep their problems in the family. Uh, but the fact that these court proceedings are happening is giving us kind of unprecedented visibility into the inner workings of this really powerful organization. Yeah. And it's uh, I, I kept saying and this came up on The View actually last week when we were talking about um, the tragic shooting mass shooting in Virginia Beach. The NRA came up in discussion and it had me thinking, you know, this is not your grandfather's NRA. My grandfather was a police officer, lifelong member of the NRA. But over the last uh, decade or so, the NRA is really just, and even probably even more recent than that, the NRA has just really become something that's um, off-putting to just gun rights owners. It's become something else. And it also seems to me like there's some financial impropriety going on there that is now being revealed. Um, in your story, you say the turmoil the NRA faces today is self-inflicted. That's what uh, Alexander the, the um, Alexander McQueen, that's the fashion designer, um, Ackerman McQueen. Queen said about the uh, the NRA. And one of the examples is the fact that there was abnormal board payments. There's like 76 people on the board and there was very weird financial transactions going on. The board members aren't paid, but they seem to be making money off their NRA board members. And the fact that talk a little bit briefly about Wayne LaPierre and the accusations of him spending excessively on things like wardrobe and luxury trips. That's right. There was a letter that came out several weeks ago uh, from Ackerman McQueen saying that Wayne LaPierre had the firm bill the NRA to purchase him designer clothing, international travel, car service in places like Budapest, and it was quite a lot of money. Now, the defense that the NRA says is that these expenditures happened over 10 years and that it was part of sort of, you know, presenting Wayne LaPierre as somebody sort of, uh, you know, as somebody with a public-facing job who needed to look good for his NRA responsibilities. But, you know, regardless of any defense here, this is the kind of thing that drives NRA members crazy. And in addition to that, it really bothers people who work for the association. Many of the people working there don't make a lot of money. They've been concerned about the future of the pension fund. Uh, the Trace, which is a nonprofit newsroom that covers gun violence, reported a couple months ago that the NRA stopped giving its employees free coffee because of financial concerns. Oh, for God's and sakes. the NRA is constantly sending out these hysterical fundraising letters. So. For the NRA to simultaneously be saying that, you know, trying to sort of shake the little tin cup and say we can we can barely afford to keep the lights on, please give us money, while NRA while Wayne Lapierre has hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of clothing that he has allegedly purchased from designer stores is the kind of thing that really undermines member confidence in an organization like this. Yeah, it screams elitism, which is something that these folks support supposedly don't like, but yet the guy spending two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in one store in Beverly Hills on wardrobe in one year. That's insane to me. Um, really quick, we have about two minutes left. Uh, talk a little bit about the Russian connection, because this is something else that I think people don't realize. You had that that woman, Maria Butina, that was running around with the NRA. And then there was also some question about whether Russian money was being funneled through the NRA since they spent $30 million to help Donald Trump get elected, which is three times more than they spent in 2012 for Mitt Romney. And there were some shady characters like Alexander Torshin, who is a notorious Russian banker and accused of money laundering. Um, you know, he's a lifetime member of the NRA. Just can you talk a little bit about the, the Russian influence with the NRA? Sure thing. We know that senior officials in the Kremlin greenlit Alexander Torshin's plan to work with Maria Bettina, who's now a 30-year-old woman who's uh, serving a prison sentence right now, to work with Maria Bettina to try to influence the Republican Party and the conservative movement by building relationships in the gun rights space. Uh, Maria Bettina got to know very senior people at the NRA. She got a ton of access to the folks who work there. She built a very effective relationship and even brought a number of NRA board members and senior officials on a trip to Moscow 
in December of 2015, where they met with at least, or they were scheduled at least to meet with one member of the equivalent of the Kremlin's National Security Council, which is no small thing to be able to secure a meeting like right, that and show right. that Maria Butina was able to kind of be a uh, something of a power broker, which is pretty extraordinary for a woman who would have been maybe 27 at the time. Uh, since then, she has pleaded guilty to conspiring to act covertly as an agent of a, Russia, of a foreign government. She's serving a prison sentence that's going to run for about less slightly less than a year, and then we expect her to immediately be deported. That moment is something that's created a ton of headaches for the NRA, very unsurprisingly. Multiple congressional committees, including the Senate Intelligence Committee, are investigating Russian efforts to try to infiltrate and influence the group. And of course, the NRA has had to spend money paying lawyers to deal with these congressional investigators. The question of whether or not the Russian government moved money through the NRA has never been answered. I have not seen any documentary evidence or spoken to any people with knowledge of the NRA's financials uh, that indicate that that happened. Um, but there certainly has been a lot of speculation about it. Uh, one additional point is that I I'm not aware of any Justice Department, FBI investigations looking at the NRA when it comes specifically to the question of whether Russian money moved through the association. At the same time, <laughs> at least one Russian sure moved through. So it was not a group that had particularly good um, counterintelligence defenses set up. Right. I think that that's interesting. I mean, it wasn't mentioned in the Mueller report. And uh, I wonder if it's you know, there's another um, investigation going on that we don't know about. Uh, I, I, I don't know how they can't investigate that. You had 20 Russian donors that the Washington Post reported, plus this whole idea with, you know, Alexander Torshin, who's a shady character. I just feel like somebody should be looking into that if they're not already. But who knows that the saga continues. Um, Betsy, I know you got to run. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. And I have to have you back because you, you always have the scoop on good stuff. <laughs> sure thing. Thanks for having me, Sarah. You're you're welcome. My pleasure. Again, big thank you to Betsy Woodruff of The Daily Beast. Check out her columns. Check her out on Twitter. And that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Stay tuned for next week's edition. Jim Acosta from CNN has got a new book out called Enemy of the People. He is my guest next week. So must listen. Stay tuned for that episode next week as well. See you then.